It's midnight, the podcasting hour. <laughs> Greetings, mortal listeners. It is I, the demon Nibiros, who is almost as fearsome and powerful as the truly awesome Mephisto from Marvel Comics. The foolish podcaster Ryan Daly traded me his soul in exchange for hosting this episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. So here is a little horror story to whet your appetite. Lola Griswold was a wealthy widow, living in a lavish estate. But she never got over the death of her beloved husband, Jeffrey. She would stare for hours at his portrait, remembering his powerful chest and arms, his athletic legs, the feel of his fine blonde beard. (laughs) As time went on since Jeffrey's death, Lola became increasingly lonely, but she could never replace him. Instead, she came up with a different idea. The next morning, a handsome bachelor named Albert Draper read a singles ad in the paper that said, Well-to-do widow wants a husband, along with Lola's phone number. He called her up, and she invited him to her house that night. Lola's only sort of weird request was that Albert wear bathing trunks. Ooh, Albert was gonna get some freaky that night. When he arrived, Lola commented on how much his chiseled chest and torso reminded her of her late husband's. Then she offered him a glass of wine, which Albert downed quickly. He didn't know that she had poisoned his drink. And after he dropped dead, Lola dragged his body away. The next day, it was Judd Crow's turn to answer Lola's invitation. She asked him to roll up his pants to show off his legs, so much like Jeffrey's. Judd drank his wine, expecting Lola to show him something of hers. Instead, the drugged wine did its work and Lola dragged Judd's lifeless body to the kitchen. The next day, Danny Kavanaugh answered Lola's ad. Danny was a much younger and way-out character. That's comics code for, he smoked the ganja. But he had one thing going for him that would appeal to Lola. His blonde beard looked so much like Jeffrey Griswold's when he was younger. And that sealed Danny's fate. The next day, Danny's sister Eileen reported his disappearance to the police. Suspicious of the widow Griswold, Detective Howard Colbert answered her ad and visited her that night. Colbert declined her offer of wine, asking for a beer instead. Lola had no trouble poisoning the beer, even as she commented on his strong arm. When Colbert dropped to the floor, 
Lola dragged him into the kitchen. There, she opened the standing freezer door to reveal the horrific project that had occupied her time. In the freezer was a patchwork corpse of her victims, the chest of Albert Draper, the legs of Judd Crow, the head of Danny Kavanaugh. The body had no arms yet, but that wouldn't be a problem for long. She would dismember Howard Colbert, sew his arms to the corpse, and then defrost the body so she could have her husband Jeffrey back forever. Unfortunately, Lola's psychotic scheme would never come to fruition, as Detective Colbert had only been faking death. Suspecting poison, he had poured his beer out instead of drinking it, and he captured Lola for the murder of her three previous suitors. Lola is a Lethal Lady appeared in Unexpected Number 190, published on December 14, 1978. The story is written by Carl Wessler, drawn by Amado Castrillo, and edited by Jack Harris. And gentlemen, if you're listening, I hope you take the message of this story to heart. If a rich widow wants to see you in a bathing suit on the first date, well, you should still probably do what she wants, but there is a slight chance she will murder you. I would totally do it, though. I truly rock the Speedo. <laughs> anyway, enjoy this episode of Midnight. Ryan is going to cover some Swamp Thing comics with Herman and Billy from the Into the Weird podcast. Until the next time you hear from me, the Demon Lord Niron... Wait, uh, Nibiros. Is that right? Yes, I am Nibiros, not Mephisto, who is far better in every way. Anyway, here's a promo or something. The Justice League wouldn't help them, so Batman formed a new team. These people of power are all looking for something, be it their past, or a purpose, or simply somewhere to fit in. These are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the outsiders. Oh, we are the outsiders. Covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning, as they face villains no other team can, like Agent Orange, the Force of July, and the Nuclear Family. <laughs> Puns. This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehuntresspodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are The Outcasters, because to live outside the law, you must be honest. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Ryan Daly, and I am thrilled and chilled to welcome not one but two guests onto this segment. 
You know them both from their stellar work on Into the Weird, a podcast dedicated to the wacky, wonderful, and weird stories from Marvel's Bronze Age. First up, making his second appearance on Midnight, it's Herman Lowe. What's up, Herman? Hey, man, not much. Hi there, weird listeners and horror fans. I'm back. glad to be back, Ryan. As always, Midnight, one of my favorite shows, uh, the show that kickstarted my podcast life. So thanks, man, for having me back. Thank you. Thank you for saying so. Uh, you're already on the show, so you don't need to flatter me, but it's okay. <laughs> hey, I want to be on subsequent shows. We'll see. It depends how this one goes. And right. second, making his first appearance here, please welcome Billy D. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going great, Ryan. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, as I mentioned, Herman has been on the show before, back when we talked about Swamp Thing issue four. So if the listeners want to hear his origin story with horror, they can check out that episode on it, or his own podcast, The Long Box of Darkness. But since this is your first time here, Billy, let us know how and when you became a fan of the horror genre, be that in books, comics, whatever media. Well, it was definitely in uh, films, and probably at a young age where I probably should not have been watching certain <laughs> films, uh, but I was... <laughs> I have a single parent home, and my mom worked night shift. So when she came home, she went to sleep. So then I could have free reign of the television, and that probably wasn't a good thing. But that's definitely what led to me watching some movies in the, I'd say, probably early 1980s uh, that were, you know, probably inappropriate totally for me. But uh, that's what got me into horror and scared the life out of me and loved it and have never looked back. How did that gravitate towards your your appreciation for the horrific or the weirder comic genre? Well, for me, comics, I was only into superheroes when I was young. I didn't get into horror comics until the 1990s, and that was when I discovered reprints of The Tomb of Dracula, mm -hmm. uh, Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. And I just fell in love with you know that comic, the characters, and the writing, and of course the artwork with Gene being my favorite artist of all time. Oh, really? <laughs> you may have heard this. <laughs> I don't know a lot of people who, who care for Gene. Huh? It's kind of an acquired taste, yeah. Philistines. Philistines all. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> all righty, folks. We are going to have a lot of fun on this episode because we are going to dive into three muck-encrusted issues of the original Swamp Thing series. Picking up where Rob Kelly and I left off last episode, Herman, Billy, and I are going to tackle issues 6, 7, and 8, which will follow the trend of putting the titular swamp monster in three different settings against three very different threats. All three of these issues are from the same creative team, writer Len Wein, artist Bernie Wrightson, and editor Joe Orlando. Swamp Thing number 6 is cover dated September slash October of 1973, but the on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World, was June 7th of 1973. The book cost 20 cents and featured a cover by Bernie Wrightson showing... How would we describe this? Oh boy, uh, yeah, some kind of uh, robot creature ready to attack Swamp Thing. <laughs> yeah, it looks kind of like a. Uh, it was inspired by uh, a type of uh, avian sort of life form. It's kind of bird esque. It's got a beak and a dome shaped glass head, uh, reminiscent of maybe Simon from the Teen Titans, mm -hmm. where there's some kind of a brain beneath it. But you know, mm -hmm. as we pr progress through the story, obviously it's all e electronic. But yeah, it's got a very interesting. It's got a sledgehammer like uh, arm, and then a, an arm more clawed looking. 
very interesting design, but but really strange. And then it's got this sort of wind-up kind of springy type of waist, <laughs> reminiscent of one of those slinkies that we used to play with as a kid. Yeah, and it's crashing through like a series of old grandfather clocks, like old wooden clocks and stuff like that, like all like crashing out as like Swamp Thing is kind of reacting to this. Like, I looked at this the robot and i was like what was bernie wrightson drawing inspiration from like what could this have been based on i could not think of anything like i was like this is i don't think i have ever seen a robot that looks like this yeah this is bernie just letting his imagination run wild here um, you know i don't know how he came up with this either but um Maybe he was on a deadline. <laughs> Just like, okay, I'm going to throw a couple of things in here. But, you know, I do like it when he draws metal because his metal always looks organic. And look at this robot's, like, arms, especially the bicep attached, you know, if you can call it a bicep, uh, between the shoulder joint and the elbow, elbow joint. It looks kind of like, you know, uh, muscle. <laughs> so, Bernie, he can't keep the organic side of his art out of any, any of his robotic pieces either. Which I like because it lends itself a bit to the horror, making this look like a cyborg more than a, a complete robot. It's not an overly complicated cover or anything like that, but it's just a fantastic cover. I love it. I mean, Bernie Wrightson, what a master. I mean, maybe some inspiration from something we're not aware of, like a an old you know sci-fi film or something. But yeah, where he got the inspiration from this one, I have no clue. <laughs> the abdomen sort of uh, like lower midsection area and the left arm that has the closet have that sort of like accordion kind of coiled feel and everything that sort of reminds mm-hmm. me of like like the old Lost in Space or, or, or some really you know those old black and white B sci-fi movies or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. It's a good comparison. Um, I also got the, the classic 50s feel, but um, I did actually check out some old images from those movies and from even from comics way back then. I couldn't find anything. <laughs> so talk about someone being something being truly original. This might be it. <laughs> All right, Billy, would you care to tell us the story from Swamp Thing issue six? Oh, I'd be happy to. Uh, this one is entitled A Clockwork Horror. Uh, Our story picks up with Abby and Matt as they're in Matt's government office trying to piece together what happened to the Swamp Thing and Alec and Linda Holland. We see that the stray dog they picked up is still by their side and so is the electronic bug that is implanted in it to spy on them. Matt is then informed that he's been taken off the case in order to investigate a certain town in Vermont with strange happenings. Meanwhile, Swamp Thing hitched a ride in the back of a van but gets tossed out and falls off a cliff. He awakens to find himself being helped by none other than Linda and Alec Holland. They tell him that the mayor of the town can help him, and they proceed to take him. We meet Mayor Clockman, and as he introduces himself amidst a wall full of clocks, he tells Swampy that he built this town's people and used obituaries from the newspapers for the likenesses of the robots, hence the Alec and Linda models. On the other side of town, Abby and Matt arrive and begin investigating. But elsewhere, we see a mysterious man in some kind of mutated animal, and he's listening in via the bug in the dog's brain. He's very interested in Mayor Clockman's abilities, and so he sends a squad called Task Force 4 to bring him in. Moments later, a chopper arrives with not only soldiers toting machine guns, but an oversized robot. They immediately state their purpose to kidnap the mayor, but Matt attempts to stop them. He gets shot for his trouble 
as does the Alec and Linda Holland robots. This sends Swamp Thing into a rage, and he proceeds to destroy the robot. The soldiers then open fire on Swampy, but Mayor Clockman jumps in front of him, taking the bullets. The remaining robots dogpile on the soldiers, killing them without mercy. All right, so what did you guys think of that one? Well, Ryan, um, yeah, your thoughts, man. I, I'm, I'm just going to say I loved it. <laughs> All the Swamp Thing, those early Swamp Thing issues are gold. You know, it's all right. I mean, as, as Swamp Thing stories go, yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> this was this was crazy, and and yeah, it picks up off of the cliffhanger from the last issue where it seemed like Alec and Linda Holland were alive. What was going on with there? We found out now they're they're robots. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's another fascinating story, and it's continuing the trend that they set up where you know every issue, Ween is taking him on the road. He's taking Swamp Thing like to a new type of setting. And then a new subgenre of horror. You know, we had the mad scientist. We had the Frankenstein story. Herman, we talked about the werewolf story. Mm. Um, last time we had the, or last issue, we had the, like, burning Salem witches type of story. And now we've got this weird sort of um, Stepford, like, village yeah, Stepford or wives. Hmm? Yeah, the yeah. village of the damned, but by way of, you know, Stepford wives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Truly, like surprisingly, like, like benevolent. In fact, like there, there's no threat from this community, or there's nothing. It doesn't seem to be there's anything overly sinister until they are in fact threatened. Um, which kind of, I mean, I, I guess uh, once again playing into this idea of who is the real monster. You know, it's it's not the village of of robots and cyborgs. It's the people who try to corrupt them. Mm, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I, I I mean everything about this issue. When I reread it again, I I forgot how much. I actually liked it because if you think about it, um, okay, obviously it harkens back to a clockwork orange, you know, from the title, but actually, I mm-hmm. mean, if you think about the, 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 the theme of how to, you know, stop humans from perpetrating evil, that's what clockwork orange is about a little bit, you know, um, this, um, method that they have of conditioning your mind. So here they skip over the method and just create new humans, uh, even though they're robots, it, they're seemingly more human than human. <laughs> Because they don't have this horrible predilection towards uh, evil. And then um, that's kind of where the clockwork orange angle comes in. And then you have the Stepford Wives angle, which is, you know, you want to create the perfect partner. <laughs> which, in, in this case, it skips over the whole femi- feminist aspect, because, or, or the whole uh, patriarchal aspect, I should say. Because it focuses on only, you know, the, on both sides of the relationship. The, the men are both perfect and the women are perfect. But, and yet... You know, they're so sophisticated, they can feel love. So they are superior to current humanity, if you want to put it like that. So that's that's that horror angle. And then the, the very last one comes from, obviously, human interference, which leads to Terminator-style death, you know, <laughs> on the part of, you know, how these uh, task force guys are taken out. So, you know, so many horror elements come into play. And they even break the fourth wall, a very early example of breaking the fourth wall in comics on the very first splash page where you have Matt Cable looking at the artist's conception of Swamp Thing, you know, because he's hunting Swamp Thing down. And it's done by Bernie Wrightson. <laughs> I actually, yeah. I, I thought about that and I, I like the, the opening page because I think it's a really, it's a cool creative way of getting th- like the creator credits and everything, like having like messages called Joe Orlando and stuff like that and yeah. like, showing like the artist imp- uh, conception. That's where you, you get Bernie Wrightson's name. I thought it would be kind of clever if going off the the idea that artist conceptions are always a little bit off, if 
the way he drew Swamp Thing was more like the original version from House of Secrets 92, which has like yeah. a slightly different shape, oh, a slightly yeah. different form than, than what Swamp Thing looks yeah. like in this series. Yeah, that a little been... more heap, a little more heapish. Yes, yeah. yeah, a lot more like the heap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They could have even have gone a little bit further and uh, poked the bear by making him man thing esque. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things to love about this issue. I think. I mean, um, even <laughs> the comedic side where Swamp Thing, you know, gets thrown from a truck going over a pothole <laughs> and he rolls down the mountainside along with a crate of, of vegetables. <laughs> and he must have been sleeping while he was in that truck for some reason. This was back when Swamp Thing was still more human than Monster, where he still needed things yeah. like sleep. And, um, you know, he plunges down this mountain face or, or cliff, and then, you know, he wakes up not knowing what happened. <laughs> and then he says, feels like I was put through a cement mixer. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, um, you know, there's a little bit of comedy too. Um, I don't know if that was intentional on Len Wein's part, or was this just part of still a wacky leftover from the Silver Age, but sto- storytelling which inspired Wein initially. But yeah, it's it's a, it's very very funny for me in the beginning, and then later on, of course, it takes a tragic turn. So you you hit all the beats, I think, uh, Wein and Wrightson in this one. Um, of course, now. Having been a resident of Vermont for the past like eleven years, I, I was intrigued by the fact that this one was set there. <laughs> it, it being a small abandoned mining town in Vermont, that could be—I mean, there were several ghost towns more in the southern and central part of the state, like Glastonbury, Lewiston. And given that there was kind of a tradition along among the Marvel and DC writers to go up to the Rutland Halloween Festival in Vermont, mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe Len Wein actually knew of one of these. Um, because uh, yeah, there were there were a few like ore towns that like dried up in the 1700s and either became ghost towns or they were replaced by like pulp mills or paper mills. However, the fact that this town is designed to look like a Swiss village uh, means Wrightson really didn't have to make it look like a small New England town or Vermont town. So. Um, yeah, well, this Mayor oh. Clockman, right? He's from from uh, Switzerland. Yeah, I'm mistaken. <laughs> It's got a, a strong, you know, Geppetto vibe as well, but, you know, that's more Italian. But, yeah, there's lots of influences here. And, and of course, the Swiss being renowned for their, you know, precision in making these Swiss clocks, it would make sense if he put these clockwork motors in his, you know, Android creations. So, and yeah. I thought that I would get sick of Clockman's dialect with the Zs and Vs, but <laughs> I didn't. I thought it was kind of charming and funny. I thought Ween did it right. Yeah, yes. for sure. A few things, though, that I did have concerns with. And again, these are the sort of questions that you really only ask when you have to scrutinize something for the podcast. But why is Abby going with Matt on this assignment for the FBI? Right. And also, why are they taking a dog with them? Uh, That was, yeah, that's my one little nitpick of the whole story. It's just, oh, we pick up a random dog and now we just like, he's ours now. It's kind of, I mean, obviously, Ween had to use the dog to drive the subplot of the conclave, but... Other than that, it's like, yeah, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> and what is Abby's legal status here? <laughs> Matt just brought her from some Eastern European village or whatever a couple issues ago. And like, now she's well, I guess if you're, Yeah, well, I guess if you're, you know, uh, an agent of what, the CIA, <laughs> you know, like this nebulous organization somewhere between the CIA and the FBI like Matt is, you could, uh, you know, tamper with the books a bit or... <laughs> <laughs> do something to make her, you know, legal. <laughs> I don't know, but he's he's probably got some some contacts. I don't know, but obviously this is too far fetched mm-hmm. to be believed. You're gonna have to seriously dis- suspend your disbelief here. But um, you know, there's monsters running around and clockwork people with human emotions, so I'm willing to let it slide. <laughs> suspend belief, yeah. 
yeah. And and yeah, and the, the, that suspension of belief is tested because we get the scene when the uh, the Linda Holland android takes Swamp Thing and they hide under a tree from the rain <laughs> and they almost kiss and I'm like. Okay, oh, this really only works because she's a robot, and like, it's it's one of those things. Like, <laughs> like from the beginning of the story, I'm like, how come nobody is reacting to the fact that he is a monster? Oh, okay, it's robots. They don't view him that way. Their sense of humanity is a little bit skewed. Okay, but this is going to be a thing that comes back in several stories in this run. It's like, why don't people react to the fact that he's a monster in their midst? Like, yeah. Len Wein did not make a lot of people scared of him, despite his physical appearance. No, it seemed that only the people from small towns are willing to accept the existence of monsters and sort of take him in. Because the very next issue, we'll see citizens from, from yeah. a major DC city react like normal people should when they see a monster. <laughs> but yeah, in the in the uh, issue eight, which we'll get to later, that's it's the same thing, the same trope. It keeps repeating itself in these Swamp Thing issues. They just, you know, oh, there's a monster in our midst. Okay, let's let's you know take him into our house and and give him some tea. <laughs> that's kind of. <laughs> the vibe we get from Ween here. Yeah. Uh, other than the fact that, you know, there were these weird beats between, you know, the action scenes. You know, it seemed that, that Ween was trying to sort of give the, the reader a bit of a break. You know, he, he wanted us to sort of uh, take a breather from, you know, all the horror and uh, with a plot. Mm-hmm. And give something a few panels where he could see more human, possibly to endear him more to the reader. I don't know if there was anything in the letter columns that prompted this, but he was very intent upon making him seem more human, you know, than than monstrous, which is great because, you know, obviously you want to see him as the protagonist. But throughout it, he never actually utters a word. Everything is told in thought bubbles on, on Swampy's part, you know, so that makes the reactions of people, you know, towards him even more, you know, surprising because he's he's a monster, yeah, in in the complete sense that he even doesn't utter a word. <laughs> they don't even know if he's intelligent or not, and that yet they're willing to, like, caress his face in a romantic manner under a tree. <laughs> okay, but like you say, she's a robot, so that excuses it. <laughs> uh, what were some of your favorite pages, panels, uh, examples of Bernie Wrightson's art in this story? Well, i got to be honest. Other than one panel in the entire story, I, I thought it was glorious. I mean, I think it's page four. There's a panel where it shows uh, Matt and Abby heading to the town in Vermont. And Bernie tried to do like almost like a, a shadow effect of the sun shining through and like a tree, it looks like, and the effect on Matt's face. And I really don't care for that. I think that looks a little weird. Other than that, though, I, I was loving this book from, you know, page one to the end. I mean, the, the page, two-thirds splash page where Swamp Thing meets Mayor Clockman mm-hmm. and that room full of clocks. Oh, it's just, it's glorious. The, the detail in there that Wrightson has is just tremendous. That's a preview or a beta test for the double-page splash from Bernie Wrightson's uh, Frankenstein adaptation when you see yeah. the laboratory with all of those things. Like, because, like this, well, is, this is him like testing. It's like, okay, how much can I actually put in here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, Ryan. Yeah, man. He, he was, this was, everything here that he was doing here was leading up to him eventually then illustrating, you know, Frankenstein. And um, he lends himself towards a lot of detail, which is sometimes obscured by the colors or the inking, but not always. You know, that's what I like about him, where, you know, on the Marvel side, you had guys like, 
you know, um, let's say Tom Sutton or no Mike Plug, Mike Plug, where sometimes his details would be obscured by heavy inkers or by colorists. Um, Bernie seemed to have been lucky, you know, in his DC tenure, not to have had that. Even on his uh, solo tales of you know House of Mystery and you know all of the other horror titles, he always seemed to have a lot of detail packed into panels and uh, heavily colored, but uh, nothing's been obscured. And that's why, you know, my favorite sequence of panels is at the very end, uh, I think it's page 19, where the clockwork people take revenge for the death of their, their creator, mm. Task Force 4, you know, which makes me wonder, you know, what, what would Task Force 1 and 2 and 3 look like? Or even 5? They might each have an accompanying robot or I don't know. They all had a robot that looked like General Grievous, yeah. <laughs> So you know they they pile onto this guy and tear uh, these people and tear them to pieces and yeah it's it's strong you know James Cameron Terminator vibes like I mentioned earlier but also then they're all swallowed by this conflagration mm-hmm. and they're all dying in this pile of, of of human bones and metal exoskeletons or endoskeletons I should say mm-hmm. and um, it's a stunning effect I mean, it's kind of like his creepy work you know like where sometimes if there's a vi- a, a panel showing violence. Or, or, you know, an explosion, Bernie's art will sort of, um, you know, di- it will become, uh, you know, it will dissolve into yep. this kind of um, kind of a fiery effect, which I love about him. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great series of panels. I love the bottom of page 15, and it is after the Linda Holland uh, robot has been shot, and, and she's basically dying, for lack of a better word, in Swamp Thing's arms. Okay. And it's a series of six panels. It, I mean, she she is basically in the same position because she's like, you know, it's her her corpse, but she's like slowly kind of sliding out of his hands. But we get different expressions, different emotion from Swamp Thing, and each one's as he's holding her. And the the second panel, you really see the anguish and the the sorrow as he's he's like, my God, I've found you, only to lose you a second time. And then as she's slipping away, he turns his head and he's raising his fist. And by the end of it, we don't even see her, and he's just like clenching it he's like stop it stop stop and he's like crunching it and as he's getting ready to just like go full-on aggressive against these attackers and their robots so i like that sequence oh yeah that's a great one yeah i forgot i briefly forgot about that one but it's heartbreaking for sure watching her die a second time and a few panels before that he watched himself die (laughs) (laughs) but that you know that makes alan moore's uh, take on something even that much more terrible because all of these moments basically don't matter (laughs) you know but we'll get to that you know, far in the future. <laughs> but think about it. It's, it's horrible mm-hmm. to read this in, in, in retrospect, you know, like, um, yeah. yeah. My first impression of this story, sort of like overall after I read it was, I I, I second-guessed myself because I wondered if this story would be better without the Conclave. Um, because Ween inserts them into the story to set up this inevitable confrontation so that he can deal with them on the next issue. We'll get to that. And I thought the horror, because as I'm reading it, I assumed the horror would be the clockwork robots in this creepy little village, because that's what I was expecting from what we've, you know, gone over, like with the, the Stepford uh, family, Stepford wives type of thing. Um, but as was kind of typical, Ween didn't do that. He, he showed that the real villain isn't this eccentric clockmaker and his robot, the engineer. He, he created a utopia, basically, and it's the real people, the humans, who are incapable of maintaining that. It's there. The greed and the evil of the Conclave intrudes on this perfect village, which leads to Clockman's death, and at that point, you get his creations break protocol and programming and go nuts, wiping out the task force in a, in a delicious uh, apocalypse. Version. So, um, 
I, I, yeah, the conclave, yeah. yeah, you're right. The conclave was a little bit superfluous in this story. It could have just have been, you know, government, you know, mm. led there by Matt Cable, yeah. um, because that is the reason why he went in the first place. I mean, and then Matt could turn on them. There, there were a couple of different ways they could have told the story. I mean, the military-industrial complex are the villains here, uh, personified by the conclave. But the conclave, I think, fizzled out very early on in the early Swamp Thing issues. They didn't turn out to be this major threat. I don't know why Ween decided to do that. We'll talk about that in the next issue. But, you know, here they still seem like a big deal. I mean, they've got task forces. They're like Cobra. Right, you know, right. from G.I. <laughs> but, um, you know, then, yeah, you're right. They uh, they weren't really as big a part of the story. This could have been anything, you know, other than them, too. Uh, just to show us a bit of real-world horror. You know, if you think about governments trying to appropriate uh, benevolent technologies for evil. Right. Um, there's lots of different ways they could have gone. But, you know, lots of um, set, it was, uh, scenes, heartfelt scenes in this. Like, every time someone gets shot, you know, whether it's a robot or a human, like, you know, Linda or Alec or Clockman, you know, you really, it, it, it looks like real people are being, you know, torn to shreds here, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's all that much more impactful now, you know, with everything that's going on. But also back then, I think, you know, like, um, you know, uh, since he's a Swiss, you know, a neutral Swiss national, you know, this is also hearkening back to Nazis and, you know, um, World War Two. And there's lots of vibes that I get from this thing. And, you know, um, so the conclave itself, they're just representing this formless, you know, threat right. from big government. But like you say, there's absolutely no reason why, you know, they couldn't have done another, you know, or put another, you know, antagonist in there. And then, you know, I wanted to ask you guys about something. At the very end, uh, there's a clock, and it's and it's tolling, you know, the hour, bong, bong, bong. And then Swamp Thing, just before he leaves this town, he smashes the clock, which is, for me, strange, because the clock embodied Clockman's, you know, labors, his hard work, his, everything he did to create this little town. And then this final bit of destruction on the part of Swamp Thing, it doesn't really make sense to me, that very last sequence of panels. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I mean, I think he's just extremely, you know, angry and pissed off and his heart was just, you know, basically ripped out because, you know, obviously you guys alluded to the fact that <laughs> it's kind of creepy and weird, but uh, Swamp Thing and the Linda Holland robot kind of had a moment and it was taking him back to his relationship with the real Linda uh, mm-hmm. before he uh, changed. So I don't know if he was just, you know, just that angry and upset about it or what happened, but what were you thinking, Ryan? Sort of the same thing. I think, uh, on the one sense, the, the the clock represented the the whole town, the village clockman, and the the new robot version of Linda that Swamp Thing might have been able to have because he's a monster, but she's a robot. Eh, together, they make it work. Uh, but I, I think he he realized that like the pain that it caused and that it, it was too perfect, and humanity doesn't deserve that. That, that paradise, that perfect, he can't, they can't, he can't have that kind of love. So in this just sort of impotent frustration, he, he shatters it, he destroys it because it's not real and it's not something that he's going to get at the end. So I think he, him crushing the clock was just him wiping this chapter of his life away, like kind of basically dismissing the whole village and, and what this thing might have been. Yeah, it, it does make sense if you put it like that, both of you, because if you think about it, this, could be the the start of something's hatred towards you know false reality, which is something we'll see happening much later on. You know, I'm specifically thinking issue 22 of volume two, where he he reacts to the truth in a very violent way. So this is something that could be a precursor to that. Yeah. So yeah, makes sense. 
All right, folks, we're just getting started, so we are going to take a promo break right now, but we will be back in a minute with the next issue. Don't go away. Need a podcast talking about weird stuff? Well, then we've got just the thing for you. Into the Weird, a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of comics, featuring the voice talents of Mr. Billy Delicious. Hola. Mr. Herman Hellstrom Lowe. Hey there. And straight from the long box of darkness, his infernal majesty Dormammu. How are you And many more. But wait a minute. You might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct, but Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sword and sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools, dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. ITW's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird. Swamp Thing number 7 has a November-slash-December cover date, but would have hit stores on August 7th, 1973. The cover shows Swamp Thing clinging to the side of a Gotham City high-rise building as the Batman swings into view from below. What do you think about this cover, Herman? Okay, I really like this cover because it's got a bit of a Spider-Man vibe to it. But, um, you know, uh, it's also very atmospheric. If you think about Gotham City being the dark slum of the DC universe, <laughs> this is sort of showing that. But it's also showing the grandeur, you know, of, of things that we associate with, with, you know, the Wayne Corporation and, and all of that. Uh, so you've got this crumbling building, this, this high-rise building, but it's, it's full of cracks, um, that Swamp Thing's clinging to, and then you've got the city in the background showing, you know, in the, in, in the distance, the skyscrapers. But then you've got these slum-looking kind of, you know, um, buildings that Swamp Thing's, um, you know, is clinging to. And then you've got a great use of shadows on this cover. You see, like, some the, the light sources from below. Obviously, it could even be a bat signal. Who knows? You know, they could be highlighted, you know... Um, uh, superimposed against the bat signal, but whatever, you know, the light source is coming from below and sh- Swamp Thing's shadow is being thrown on the back of this building and the rest is in yellow and Batman's also got this yellow effect on the bottom of his cape as he swings towards Swamp Thing. So, uh, right off the bat, <laughs> pardon the pun, you've got this um, uh, if you, you've got this cover setting up a confrontation between Swamp Thing and Batman. I mean, they don't know, they don't look like they're going to be friendly towards each other. This is not a Marvel cover, folks, where you don't get what you... <laughs> what you're promised by the cover i mean dc also did that a couple of times but you know this is a cover that actually reflects the interiors 
And, um, you know, I love the lighting in this. I love the fact that it's black and yellow. And Swamp Thing's green is sort of, you know, you know, muted when it comes because of the heavy shadows. But you also see the, 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 the part that's, you know, um, re- receiving the light, you know, as light green and a great use of color here. And um, I love every time Batman swings towards someone on his bat line. It's just I love it. So, yeah, I'm, this cover is a big winner for me. What do you guys think? Yeah, this one. I love this cover. It's not easy to pull off bright, you know, more vibrant colors on a cover of a horror comic and still, you know, make it look, I don't know if I would say scary, but, you know, definitely give that horror vibe off. But, you know, get very bright yellow and even red, you know, here on this cover. It's just, it's great. He somehow, you know, the masters can pull it off. Bernie Wrightson did with this one. It's just incredible. Like you said, the yellow from like a spotlight coming up from the ground level on Batman, the inside of Batman's cape. Oh, it looks incredible. Great, great job. Love it. And it's a momentous occasion because this is the first glimpse of a mainstream DC character in this book. You know, we haven't had that. So That's right. Good point. Yeah. I mean, they used to do that in Marvel to, you know, boost sales. So I don't know if that was the reason they put him in here, but it could also be because Len Wein is just a huge fan of Batman and Bernie Wrightson too, apparently. Mm-hmm. You know, they were Batman readers when they were kids. Um, from the research I've done, and they, you know, wanted to, I mean, Bernie wanted to draw Batman since forever. He might have already had a chance to do that by, at this point in time, but it, they, they could have been lobbying for it even. I'm not, I don't know if your research yielded anything about that, but that's just my, my theory. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, mm. So I, I'm reading this in DC Special Series number 17. Um, DC Special Series was a weird, weird series that sort of did a lot of reprints of different genre stuff, but it also did blue ribbon like digests and treasury mm. editions. It was just a weird co- collection all. Um, but all ten of the Swamp Thing issues by Ween and Wrightson were collected in four different issues of uh, DC Special Series. And issue 17 reprints issues five six and seven and the cover to number five is the front cover and the cover to number six is the back cover Ah. it does not show the cover to number seven which has batman on it and i was just kind of thinking of that in context can you imagine any comic book being being published today that has batman in it that does not have him on the cover, like showcasing what he is, like to to try and sell more copies of that. Can you imagine having like this comic with Batman in it and him not on the cover? Like, <laughs> no, that's impossible. Whoever would be in that's charge crazy. of this book would be fired for like negligence. <laughs> Just... Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. No, that's baffling, baffling. Different times. Yeah. Different places, no kidding. So. All right. Night of the Bat begins with a quote from The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, proving that Alan Moore was not the first writer to spice up comics with unnecessary pretentious verse. Immediately after, we, immediately after, we find the monstrous Swamp Thing lurking in the shadows of a Gotham City street, carrying with him Mutt, the stray dog adopted by Alec and Linda Holland way back in issue one, the same dog that traveled with Matt Cable across the Atlantic and back during his pursuit of the Swamp Thing, because the dog carries a sophisticated surveillance device implanted by the sinister syndicate known as the Conclave. Whew! Knowing that his appearance will terrify the people of Gotham, who you would think would be in a constant state of fear given how often they're terrorized by killer clowns, scarecrows, ventriloquist dummies, and one former elected official whose left side of his face was burned off by acid. 
Swamp Thing breaks into a Salvation Army to steal clothes so he can move about the city more covertly, but this break-in is witnessed by a police officer on patrol. The cop radios Chief O'Hara for backup. By the time Swamp Thing leaves the store, dressed in a trench coat and fedora, you know, the same disguise that helps Ben Grimm the Thing and Raphael the Ninja Turtle blend in so well to the busy foot traffic, there are half a dozen cops waiting for him. They treat Swamp Thing like a black teenager in a gated community, unloading their guns and claiming that he was the aggressor. Of course, the bullets have little effect on Swamp Thing, who initially pleads with them to hold their fire. When that doesn't work, he lashes out, lifting up one of their squad cars and throwing it against another so that both cars explode. In the fiery chaos that ensues, Swamp Thing and his dog rush down an alley, smashing through the brick wall at the end and making his escape. Meanwhile, millionaire Bruce Wayne meets with the board of Wayne Enterprises to hear a report from one of his executives, Nathan Ellery. After the meeting, Bruce takes the elevator to his private penthouse, where his trusty butler Alfred has laid out Bruce's attire for the evening. That is, the cape and cowl of the Batman. Batman goes to Gotham's dockyards, where he finds a group of smugglers unloading their freight. He wants information on the Conclave, but the smugglers aren't in the mood for sharing, so they fight and Batman beats them senseless. As he searches for clues to the Conclave's mysterious leader, the bat signal shines high in the night sky above the city. Flashback to earlier that night, when Nathan Ellery left the meeting of the Wayne Foundation. Ellery went down to his private limousine, where he was greeted by his driver, Driscoll, and his pet chimpanzee. For Nathan Ellery is, in fact, Mr. E. Not the leader of the alternative rock band, the Eels, but the leader of the Conclave, whom both Batman and Swamp Thing are searching. Mr. E goes to a warehouse on Potter Street, and there we find Matt Cable and Abigail Arcane, captured by a very German mad scientist named Dr. Hammerschmidt. Matt and Abby are trapped in machines that look like electric chairs, but according to the mad doctor, they have so far refused to answer any questions. When Matt mocks Mr. E, the Conclave's leader tells Dr. Hammerschmidt to proceed with torturing them. Meanwhile, Batman meets Commissioner Gordon, who tells him about Gotham's new visitor, the monster that the government calls Swamp Thing. He asks Batman to catch the Swamp Thing before it causes a citywide panic. Across town, Swamp Thing comes to a seedy-looking bar along the waterfront. He makes the dog wait outside while he slips inside with his perfect disguise. He finds a dark booth in the corner and tries to remain inconspicuous, which isn't easy when the bartender offers him a beer. After a while, Swamp Thing overhears a patron blabbing about getting work with the Conclave. Swampy tries to grab the note with the Conclave's contact info and bug out, but the man objects and knocks Swamp Thing's hat off. The sight of his green, inhuman face throws the bar in uproar. Everyone attacks him, but wearing a trench coat and fedora to disguise a freakish exterior form comes with certain obligatory traits that go beyond the physical, and Swamp Thing lays down an ass-whooping that any Ninja Turtle would respect. From there, Swamp Thing and his canine companion cut through Gotham's underworld, tracing one criminal contact to another, to another, until finally coming up with the location of a conclave operation at the Potter Street warehouse. At the same time, though, Mr. E activates the transmitter in the dog, signaling it to come back home. The dog runs off barking, but Swamp Thing opts to chase his other lead. 
As Mutt runs off through the dark Gotham streets, he is spied by the caped crusader, who has spent much of the night tracing Swamp Thing's path of destruction through the Conclave's lower ranks. Batman decides to follow the dog, mistakenly thinking it will lead him to the Swamp Monster. At the warehouse, Dr. Hammerschmidt is about to put Matt and Abby through another round of torture when Swamp Thing rips through the steel walls. He frees Matt, who is confused as to why the monster he thought murdered the Hollands would be helping him. The doctor desperately calls Mr. E for help, but only enrages the Swamp Thing by name-dropping Linda Holland's real killer. Later, Batman follows the mongrel dog to the high-rise home of Nathan Allery. The dog scratches at the back door, trying to enter the building. As Batman tries to understand why the Swamp Thing would be in there, the actual Swamp Thing arrives, having beaten Mr. E's location out of Hammerschmidt. The Swamp Thing has no desire to fight Batman, but cannot convince the Dark Knight of this. Batman, believing Swamp Thing a terrifying threat, goes on the offensive, delivering what should by all rights be an epic ass-kicking, except for that he's not fighting a normal human. Swamp Thing takes all of his punches and kicks in stride, hardly bothering to defend himself. But when it becomes clear that Batman will not listen to his pleas and will never relent, he fights back. He catches one of Batman's fists and knocks the Batman out with, wait for it, one punch. <laughs> Swamp Thing intends to grab his dog and take off, but the dog is still furiously trying to get inside the building. When Batman starts to recover, Swampy hides. Batman, still thinking the dog is trying to find Swamp Thing, breaks into the building to let the dog lead him to its master. Swamp Thing watches this from the hiding and takes an alternate route to the top, scaling the building wall all the way to the top. Inside, the dog leads Batman up to Nathan Ellery's penthouse. Ellery is hosting a lavish party when the door slams open and Batman and the dog barge in. The dog runs right to Ellery, who panics, realizing that Batman will suss out that he is secretly the leader of the Conclave. In desperation, Ellery draws a pistol and shoots the mongrel dead. This grisly act is witnessed not only by the partygoers and the Batman, but also by Swamp Thing, who just then comes in from the balcony. Swamp Thing brushes past Batman and attacks Ellery. He smacks him around and accuses him of all of the Conclave's crimes throughout the series. But Swamp Thing stops short of murdering the man. He merely pushes him backward. But that awkward step lands on Ellery's chimpanzee pet. The ape howls and bites Ellery. In pain, the man topples over the edge of the balcony. Batman reaches for him, but is too late. He and the partygoers can only watch as Mr. E falls to his death. Swamp Thing takes advantage of the chaos to escape, and Batman is left with many questions. His suspicions of Nathan Ellery's criminal deeds can be investigated further, but his other, more nagging suspicions, that there may be more to the Swamp Thing than he first thought, those questions may never be answered. Alright, that was that issue. So, what did you guys think? Uh, Billy, you first. What did you think of this one? Um, out of all three we're going to be talking about here, this was definitely my least favorite. Uh, it felt more like a Batman story to me than it did a Swamp Thing story. I don't know if I'm uh, off base on that or not, but it, it did to me. Um, I understand, like we talked about here previously, you know, hey, maybe uh, Wayne and Wrightson wanted to do a Batman story. And since they were doing Swamp Thing, hey, let's bring Batman in. It just seemed a little like 
maybe something that wasn't specifically plotted out really well more of a, a last second kind of thing you know something like that maybe but yeah definitely not my favorite issue not a bad issue by any stretch but um not my favorite i mean i do love the way writes and draws batman his batman is great mm-hmm. i i didn't really care for how he drew bruce wayne though which sounds kind of weird but <laughs> that's kind of how i thought i mean he only drew him in like one or two panels but bruce wayne looked a bit off to me well <laughs> yeah i mean we've we've sort of talked about that herman and i have talked about that like Wrightson never really draws classically good-looking people, <laughs> like, like at least yeah. not at least not men. Um, and and Bruce Wayne is kind of a classically good-looking, average, like leading man type. So I don't know yeah. if Wrightson knew how to draw him that way. <laughs> yeah, for I mean, real. Um, he's even wildly different in a couple of panels. If you look at the specific page, I think it's page four, where mm-hmm. they're done with the board meeting, and uh, this Mr. Ellery. Mr. E, as he's known, he shows Bruce out and he's got his hand on his shoulder. And then Bruce looks like a completely different person to the very panel right below that one. The panel right below that one where he dons the Batman cape, which is gnarly, by the way, because the cape is sort of hanging, draped over a chair. And the, the, the one arm of this chair is like a, a demonic claw or a bat claw. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, nice effect there. But Bruce looks like two totally different people, even the hairstyle. Yeah, in that smaller panel underneath the one you're saying about where he, Bruce is uh, grabbing the cape and cowl, he looks like, you know, like Bruce Wayne's, you know, drunken uncle or something. It doesn't look like <laughs> Bruce Wayne. <laughs> oh, yeah. But but look at the way uh, Wrightson drew Bruce's furrowed brows in that panel right next to the one where Ellery's showing him out on page four. Yeah. Bruce is, it looks almost like, Based on that panel alone, he's already suspecting that he's found Mr. E. But as the comic progresses, we realize that he's completely in the dark. He doesn't have a clue. In fact, Swamp Thing is more successful. at, at um, He even admits, I mean, the, the narrator even admits that. <laughs> Ween admits during the course of the story, Swamp Thing has more luck than Batman in tracking down the conclave. So, yeah, but, you know, the way he drew Bruce, you know, is a little bit inconsistent. But, you know, I, I do like the effect that he sort of goes for with, with his uh, leading men, which is like a more horror side side of things. Herman, what was your overall impression of the story? Well, yeah, I, um, okay, this story was very jarring for me, but I still ended up liking it because it showed us a lot of panels with Wrightson doing Batman. But it was jarring in the sense that up until now we, we have been, uh, conditioned to expect a different horror subgenre per issue. And this one completely, I don't know, goes the opposite way, unless you want to think of it as a vigilante, aka Batman, or more Punisher esque Batman, you know, being horror. I, I can't see that at all, but, you know, okay, this is kind of Batman, you know, does have some links to the horror uh, line, you know, but I was very taken out of this whole, you know, if you look at it um, as a whole the whole uh, Swamp Thing series up to this point. This one took me out of it a bit because there's, uh, this story is sort of uh, an aside to the to the main plot, and yet it involves the central uh, antagonist so far, which is the Conclave and Mr. E. Yeah. Um, and then it's quickly resolved, and then we, we head off in uh, sort of an aimless direction almost. So this story being the one where they finally, you know, took out the Conclave with Batman in it, that was weird for me. But the art was masterful, so I can't fault the art at all, except for Bruce Wayne, like Billy pointed out. Um, but that's that's a very minor nitpick for me. The story itself, though, plot-wise, it made sense. You know, something hunting down his friends who were kidnapped, um, uh, Abby and Matt Cable. 
So, and I like the fact that they were strapped into electric chairs at one point. You know, that that sort of added to the horror. Plus this evil doctor, uh, reminiscent of Dr. Mengele <laughs> being there. You know, this German guy, uh, Hammerschmidt. Um, so lots of great elements. It just, like like Billy said, it was it was a Batman tale in the sense that he immediately steals the show, uh, even back then. And that sort of took away from my enjoyment of the Swamp Thing. Now, I am not by any means not a Batman fan. I love Batman. But, you know, I love Swamp Thing so much more. <laughs> so, you know, for me, this definitely was a Batman issue. And that sort of detracted from my, my horror enjoyment. It is the major outlier of this run. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think both of your responses are completely spot on. And it's not just because of the the emphasis on Batman. I think there are a lot of things in this story that kind of make it weird or, or just a very kind of like jarring, as you said, kind of like just uh, it has a very different feel. And I, I should mention like the story in this is reprinted in the treasury comic Batman's Strangest Cases. So that right there, it's 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 it reprinted in a Batman collection treasury. Um, it's actually it is the only Bernie Wrightson Swamp Thing story that ever got the treasury size and format, which I think is criminal negligence on somebody's oh. part. Um, but yeah, as as to the the pedigree of these guys, like at this point, Len Wein had only written one solo Batman story. Um, he he had written Batman in a couple of issues of Justice League of America, actually, for about a year. Um, but he'd only written one single Batman one-off story, uh, which actually is kind of a horror story called The House That Haunted Batman. It's got Neil Adams art. It's a really good story. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then as soon as his run on Swamp Thing ended, he began a years-long run on Batman in Detective Comics. This is also Bernie Wrightson's first published Batman work. Um, and he would, you know, he drew Batman the Cult, and he worked on, like, I, when I actually met Bernie Wrightson a couple of months before he died at a convention, like, all of the prints, everything he had for sale, it was, like, prints or sketches of Swamp Thing or Batman or Swamp Thing and Batman together. Like, that one, those were, like, the two, <laughs> the two comic things that kind of, like, defined everything that he had. Um, so, yeah, I, I think your instincts are right. Like, this... I think this is a this is an issue of Brave and the Bold more than it is Swamp Thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, good, for real. Yeah, um, it, yeah. It's one of those team ups, and I think that that isn't just informed by how much Batman kind of takes over part of the story of this. Is Ween writes a very different Swamp Thing in this story, like the way he talks or his inner monologue, the way he thinks and everything. It's like, I mean, I was cracking the jokes, but I was like, I'm not reading the Swamp Thing that I've read for the last six or seven stories. I'm reading Ben Grimm or Raphael. Like, he's he's the well, thing, yeah. basically. Like, he's picking up cars and everything. Like, he, the way he's talking or thinking, he's got, like, kind of, like, not quite blue-collar vernacular, but it's like, this is not the the formless, shapeless muck that came out in, like, the first couple of issues that everything was instinct, everything was new. Like, this is a character who has a personality that feels like it's it's a kind of guy who's lived in the city for a while like that. Like, he's like he's he's deformed, so he has to hide himself, but he's kind of, like, comfortable in this. He's, he goes to he goes to bars and beats up gangsters. He <laughs> gets in a bar fight. <laughs> this, is, this is like a vigilante, yeah. like, crime story. Like, I was like, this is not the swamp thing that we've been following. So, I like the story, and it's fun, but I'm reading this, I'm like, this is a brave and the bold issue. This isn't swamp thing. Yeah. No, uh, this is Sam Spade swamp mm-hmm. thing, you know. This is him uh, wandering around, you know, um, checking out leads and, you know, sussing out information to, to solve a case, which is not what the Swamp Thing is all about, I think. 
I don't know. Um, obviously, like I say, there I'm just speculating. There might be reasons behind it, but they might want want to have wanted to include Batman because he's the most horror esque of the DC characters, and they wanted to boost sales mm-hmm. uh, at this point because we know the run didn't last very long. Right. You know. Um. So obviously, maybe they already showed some signs of of, of that problem early on, and. And maybe this was their attempt, you know, to to boost the sales a bit. And then, you know, it forces a, a great writer like Len Wein to to make these choices, which is so weird um, if you look back on it. But it kind of makes sense if you look at it from that perspective, you know, from 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 the company side. Like, how how do we boost the sales? Right. I think they modified Swamp Thing to fit him into a Batman world more than changing Batman to fit him into Swamp Thing's horror world. So. But, you know, since Billy and I do like the weird, Billy, I'm sure you'd agree, seeing Swamp Thing initiating a bar fight (laughs) (laughs) is brilliant. And, you know, I want someone, someone, modern comic book writer, someone appropriately smart to write a story where Guy Gardner gets time travel technology and maybe has a fight with Ice or whatever. I don't even know if they're still together. And then she she tracks him down in time and he goes to his favorite, favorite part, of the DC universe back in time, way back in 1974, where Batman gets taken out with one punch mm. <laughs> by the Swamp Thing. <laughs> oh, that would, I can just see Guy Gardner like viewing this moment over and over and over again <laughs> to get some, some, some closure. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember what the reason was that they gave for Swamp Thing going into that bar, but it was completely absurd. I thought, what? Why in the world would he do that? Like, come on, he's too smart for that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, this is a CD bar, so I was hoping to overhear some, I don't know, and, and it works. You know, strangely, it works. Like, he overhears a guy bragging about joining the Conclave, and then he steals the guy's papers, and that's how the bar fight starts. So, you know, it worked, but only in the logic of this whacked-out universe. <laughs> the first bar he enters, he gets what he needs. Batman, you know, struggles. He's like, you know, uh, running around town trying to find out a way, way to get to the conflict. Swamp Thing does this by walking into the bar. <laughs> you guys, you guys are underestimating how much a trench coat and a hat can conceal any kind of monster form, <laughs> from a turtle to the thing to Godzilla. You know, this this disguise can hide anybody. Power of the yeah, true, the power true. of this trench coat. You know, uh, and that's true. You know, like once he dons the trench coat after he, you know. Uh, appropriated from, and that's another scene that's reminiscent of James Cameron's Terminator. Mm-hmm. You know where 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 um, you know uh, Hicks, uh, no no what's it Reese? <laughs> I call him Hicks from Aliens. Uh, Reese steals the trench coat, you know, from that store. You know, he becomes a different person. He was a man from the future, and they became a man completely blending in with 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 with, with the past. Same thing with Swamp Thing here. Same thing with the thing, like you say. Same thing with the turtles. Uh, it's the power of the trench coat shining through and. And it sort of works, but you know, uh, you know, when he eventually one one thing we do have to mention here is he does discover though that the conclave is linked to his and Linda's demise, which so far it seems that he was unaware of. That is one mo- momentous thing happening there, and I, I also attribute that solely to the power of the trench coat because <laughs> he couldn't do that in the the the, the, the six <laughs> issues leading up to this. Well, but he does that. Yeah, I, I think I think Ween had to do that because I think 
I, and I don't know what his grand design was, if he even had a plan for them in the beginning. I suspect maybe not. But, you know, if going back to the first issue, he uses the Conclave as this sinister organization that's trying to steal the secret of this bio-restorative formula that he's working on. It's like they're going, like, what, what it was, like, AIM or something in the Man-Thing origin or whatever. It was just some, yeah. you know, he, like... Alec Holland was was making this thing for a nebulous government organization, and then there's a nebulous secret or like criminal organization that's trying to steal it from. Him. So he creates the conclave. But after that origin story, there was no reason to have them ever come back in the book, except for the fact that they've got this dog that they have to deal with, and this dog is like spying on him. So he just every like two or three issues he would remind us that the conclave exists. And I think at this point he was like, okay. We gotta deal with this. We gotta like. He's, I I don't want to deal with this anymore. Let's just get rid of this stuff. So they forced the conversa- the confrontation in these two issues, and and I think yeah, we we had to sort of remember that they were instrumental in Linda's death. To, I, I, I mean, ju- I mean that had to be the the thing that condemns uh, Ellery, so that you want him to die by the end of this one. Yeah, it's weird though that it seems that ultimately the Conclave was just one man. <laughs> you know, one man and his mom. <laughs> And, you know, lots of animal death in this one. I mean, yes. uh, little dumb, the Dum Dum Dugan dog gets plugged, which, which I like to call him. He's got the Dum Dum Dugan face. He gets plugged, and that's, that's heart-rending. And then right after that, the monkey takes a tumble with his owner off the balcony. Mm. Um, so <laughs> two animals biting the dust in this one. Innocent animals, by the way. I mean, the monkey only reacted violently when his hand got stepped on, his paw. paw got <laughs> stepped on. <laughs> we'll get another one of those in the next issue. We'll get another innocent animal death, but... Yeah. Um, yeah. speaking of I love the <laughs> dum dum Dugan dog okay go to page one you guys know how much I love Bernie Wrightson um, he's in my top three favorite artists you know <laughs> but what the hell is Swamp Thing holding in his arms because that's not a dog <laughs> <laughs> it looks like, like, like it looks like Dr. Seuss uh, Dr. Seuss it, animal it, yeah. <laughs> I thought it looked like uh, Mayor Clockman a little bit from the previous <laughs> <laughs> Oh god! Giant yeah, mustache. Doesn't look, like, <laughs> doesn't look like a dog at all. <laughs> what the hell is that? I think you're. I think it is. It's Susian. It looks like a Susian creature. Yeah. 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 yeah that, that is not a dog. You know, and its its eyes are so soulful. Yeah. Making it's, it's, death all the more pronounced later on. Oh, and then yeah, no, no, that's not a dog. It's some some kind of uh, creature designed to temper with our emotions, play on our heartstrings. <laughs> But it looks like it's about to start singing like a Billy Joel song in the stranger or something. Here. Yeah. Good one. Um but uh, if we if we want to sing some of the praises for this uh, for the art in this book, and I, I think you're right. I mean, Swamp Thing looks good. He always looks good. But I, I mean, right off the bat, you would read this issue and you're like, I want to see this guy drawing Batman a lot more often. And uh, if you go to page 12... The middle panel, like kind of like the middle third of it, is a shot of Batman standing. He's he's got his legs spread across two different like building roof rooftops or something, and the wind is pulling yeah. at his cape and it's like really kind of tugging at like the the silhouette of his back and the back of his legs. I have heard somebody, I think one of our one of the listeners or, or maybe somebody from my uh, Nightcast podcast, I don't remember who, somebody told me that this was Len Wein's favorite image of Batman was this panel. Wow. Uh, from from this issue that that Bernie Wrightson drew of Batman with his back to us, with the the wind pulling at his cape and and pulling it taut against his body like that, somebody told me that that was Len Wein's all time favorite image of Batman. I don't know if that's true, but I, I mean, it's a good it's wow. a good one. 
Okay, now that is a great image. It's an amazing image, but that panel, I, I will forever associate that panel with Batman <laughs> finding one dog in a major DC metropolis <laughs> just because of the police put out an APB on that dog. <laughs> he found that dog that very night. Wow, Batman's tracking skills are Lobo-esque in this, <laughs> in this sense. You can find well, anything hey, except hey, the Conclave. Yeah, up until that point, Swamp Thing had been the better detective, so they had to give you know throw Batman a bone. Sorry for the pun there. Throw him a bone. Oh. There you go. <laughs> oh, sorry, Bernie. Sorry, we we got to apologize to Bernie here. That is an amazing image, but uh, yeah, the, just the the total unbelievability of of that 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 you know what's happening in that panel is is, is kind of marring that for me. But yeah, great image. I mean, I love how uh, Bernie draws Commissioner Gordon though. You know, they only have that tiny little interaction there with Batman and Commissioner Gordon, but that one panel. Oh, that one looks great where Commissioner Gordon's talking to Batman, but Batman's kind of not there anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he yeah. takes a second to realize, but mm-hmm. I love how Commissioner Gordon looks on that uh, that one small panel. And then the page before that, too, I guess two pages before that. I don't know what it is, but I love that small panel. It's, you know, on the bottom right-hand corner of Batman looking up into the sky and seeing the bat signal all that like cross hatching, I guess it is there in the sky and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I love that small panel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. My favorite panel is a, a few pages earlier when Bernie sort of teases uh, how he's going to draw Batman. I mean, he teased it on the cover, but um, you have on page four these two panels, the, the final two panels on that page where Batman jump leaps from the window yeah. of his penthouse or whatever it is, and then the very next panel is him brooding over the you know Gotham City. Skyline, you know, uh, sort of, um, which is a classic image I associate with Bernie. You know, when he yeah. did Batman, um, what was it, Batman? Uh, the, the Cult. cult. Yep. There's lots of those images in it, yep. and uh, that that's already teasing. You know, you you just want a, a bigger panel of Batman after seeing that. Mm. So yeah, brilliant. We we get a name drop of Chief O'Hara, which is a nice little. Oh, to the oh yeah. Television show, show yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love the way uh, he writes and draws uh, Doctor Hammerschmidt or whoever, like the mad scientist. Is. Oh, He's oh. got one of those faces with the like the, such an angular. Like his whole, it's not just his nose coming to a point, but like his little upper jaw is like forward face. It's oh, he's such yeah. A weird looking. Yeah, he's Bernie's so good at designing these these um, singular looking people you know and um this is definitely hearkening back to what we said about he can't draw a handsome man <laughs> you know, he can't. it's incapable even even matt cable no he looks rugged he looks worn he looks like a, a bum most of the time but um this guy yeah look at the veins that bernie draws in this guy's throat i'm i'm looking at it on page 12 i think it is um where you know something bursts through this uh, steel mesh what looks to me to be tinfoil, but you know the guy the guy says it's steel plate, and uh, you got you know Bernie uh, drawing a, a profile of this Dr. Hammerschmidt. Look at the veins in his mm. neck. It's like, oh man, it's brilliant. And then you know obviously the subsequent panels with with Matt and uh, Abby sitting in these electric chairs, which they call electron chairs. <laughs> oh, look at the detail in the machinery. It's, it's yeah. beautiful, beautiful. And then the, I mean, the detail in the in the junk in the alley. Well, I mean, the the oh, detail yeah. kind of disappears towards the end, but we just get like the the choreographed fight. But it's a great fight with just Batman throwing all these punches, hitting him with boards, and like just going off on him, and it just has no effect. And, and Swamp Thing just catches his fist, and then just kind of clocks him with like his open fist and everything. Yeah, look at the after right after he's uh, laid laid out Batman. Mm-hmm. Batman's lying in the alley. Look at how beautifully his cape mm-hmm. sort of 
spreads over his body and you see like the contours beneath yeah. the cape. Wow, that's well done. And then you know, the very next page when the dog runs away and, and Swamp Thing also runs away because he doesn't want to beat Batman down again, apparently. Mm-hmm. You know, Batman sort of, you know, he wants to follow the dog and he, he uh, jimmies open this lock. And look at that great little panel with Batman using his tool. Pick, pick, pick. <laughs> that's the sound effect. Pick, pick, pick. <laughs> and he picks open this log. That that's also got a lot of good cross hatching. That whole page, mm. you know, the darkness sort of behind Batman. Yeah, that's also actually one of my favorite pages. With Bat- it's just so weird. It's a bit of comedy entering into it again. So the art here is the winner, you know, for me. The plot is completely out there, but yeah, the art is just masterful. But you know what I do get from the plot? I mean, it's it's not the most, not the most co- coherent or sensible thing. Um, but again, I mean, compared to any Bob Haney, Brave and the Bold story, and, and I challenge it. Haney, um, Haney. Oh, yeah. What I do get from this is I really wish we would have gotten more Batman stories from the same team, from Len Wein and, and Bernie Wrightson. I don't think they ever collaborated yeah. again on the, on the character. But, I mean, no. Len, as, I, as I mentioned before, Len Wein had a long run writing Batman and Detective Comics. It did some really stellar work, and, and uh, Bernie Wrightson had a few off stories and uh, the miniseries. But, I mean, I would have just liked to see them do more with that character. They could have, they, I mean even like a mini series or just a couple of random issues. They could have had a lot of fun with Batman together. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen that. Damn. A yeah. long run too. Mm-hmm. If, if Bernie could have done that. All right. Any final thoughts on this one before we move on? <clears throat> no, other than the fact that they tease what's going to happen in the next issue. And Bernie does that in a very small, but very grotesque looking panel, <laughs> the terror in tunnel 13. Oh, that it's a brilliant teaser. I would have definitely, you know, gone to great lengths to get this next issue if I just by seeing that one little panel as a kid obviously I wasn't oh, even yeah. born yet then but yeah that that was such a great panel that that they used to just tease what's coming mm-hmm. other than that um yeah no no final thoughts on my part I'm just glad I mean I'm not advocating hurting animals because I love animals but I'm glad the dog's gone okay moving on <laughs> <laughs> I'm dumb. we need we needed to get past the dog and the, and the chimpanzee and everything yeah, so. yeah. All right, listeners, uh, we're going to take another break. When we return, we have one more tale to tell, so stick around. Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. The new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detective's greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The Saga of Ra's al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman vs. the Man-Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface 3 and the Ventriloquist. Plus more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novick. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No... What? Just messing with you. Wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Swamp Thing number 8 has a January-February 1974 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World, the on-sale date was October 4th, 1973. The cover shows Swamp Thing on a hill looking down as some tentacle-looking things probe around him. 
Thoughts on the cover, Herman? Okay, this cover, I know we bill this as the Lovecraftian issue, but this cover doesn't, I mean, even though it is a Lovecraftian monster, it doesn't really strike me as scary enough. I mean, obviously you've got the, the creature off-panel. Uh, you know, he's not really on the cover. He's just seeing his tentacles. Mm-hmm. But the tentacles look a little bit... I would have liked it if they were a little more horrific-looking. Instead, they taper off to look almost plant-like. Yes. So it's sort of a, a fail there for me because um, it doesn't, you know, give me that effect of, oh, if it was a tentacled a monstrosity more akin to, you know, like a cephalopod or something, you know, that Lovecraft uh, enjoyed <laughs> referencing, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of squid-like thing, some octopus tentacles. I would have felt the horror more. And the colors are also very similar to Swamp Thing's own color, brown and and a little bit of uh, orange in there, yellow, even though there's no green in there. It's sort of like, it doesn't really stand out to me as a, as a really scary monstrosity. Whereas I, I think, Ryan, we mentioned this when, when you and I did the show the last time, you know, Swamp Thing had a, uh, you know, an issue when Tom Yates did it with Marty Pasco in Volume 2, where there was a pretty scary tentacled monstrosity. And that thing was brightly colored and, and had real detail in its, in its protuberances. This one is a pale shadow of that. But, you know, obviously that's in the future, so we can't fault Brighton doing this in the past. But I can, because <laughs> I've been used to much scarier things on covers and scarier things from the pen of Bernie Wrightson. So, you know, for me, this cover is good because it sort of makes you wonder, what is it that Swamp Thing's looking at into this abyss? He gazes into this abyss. So great cover design, but a little bit of a fail on the monster part for me because it just looks very, you know, plant-like, rootish, you know, similar to Swamp Thing himself, which could be, for me, interpreted as, hey, it's a friend. <laughs> it's a friend from the swamp. <laughs> so not very scary for me. But, you know, I do like the cover, though, you know, the dark, the blacks, the, you know, the, the detail on the Swamp Thing. So I'm not going to say this is my least favorite cover. Okay, I am going to say it's my least favorite cover <laughs> of the three. <laughs> I am going to say that. Hypocrite that I am. So, yeah, that's that's my thoughts on the cover. Don't worry. If you weren't going to say it was your least favorite, I was going to say it was mine. So we're covered here. Yeah, I mean, I love how Swamp Thing looks. He looks great. I love the perspective. But that's pretty much all I like about the cover. It's just, I don't know. It, you know, it lacks some detail and just, it's not scary. You know, like you said, very plant-like looking, you know, Day of the Triffids or, mm. you know, uh, maybe even uh, Body Snatchers or something. Just not, I don't know. It just doesn't look and it, as very, oh, as right. ominous as it could be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What did you think, Ryan? I agree with everything you guys say. I would take it further and say it's it's my least favorite of the rights and covers, which is the first 10 issues. Um, I, I think it's the weakest. And... I, it does. It it does come across as a little bit boring, maybe. And I think it's. Uh, I I actually struggled. I was like, what is it about this that I'm not getting from it? And I think you you pointed out, Herman, that the tentacles themselves look creepy and alien, but not threatening necessarily. Like they're just mm-hmm. they're they're too soft. I don't get a sense of menace from them. He's he's staring at them. He and he, like the impression I'm getting from his face is, all right, there's something down there that's pretty weird, but. Does that mean it's dangerous or just, you know, like, is he watching some sort of weird alien orgy thing? I don't know. But it's like, <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, I would say the, the, the weakest Bernie Wrightson cover is still really, really good <laughs> from every, like, technical level. Um, I just think, you know, something has got to be, something has got to be only average, and it's this one. Yeah, no, no, that's that's as well as I could put it. You know, um, so all of us are of like mind here. It's not a great cover. I mean, um, I'm never going to say Bernie Wrightson stuff isn't great, but 
<clears throat> yeah, something's lacking here, and I think we touched upon all the reasons why. Um, but it's sad to say that about Bernie. But you know, even a, a master like him has his misses, has his um, you know um, failings every now and then. I, I missteps. So you know, I'm still even in all of this these gripes we have. There's some brilliance, mm-hmm. uh, but um, yeah, definitely not on par with what he has delivered or would you know go on to deliver. All right, Herman, will you tell us the story from this issue? Yeah. After his confrontation with the head of the Conclave and his brief encounter with Batman in Gotham City, Swamp Thing shambles in the dark through the snowy Appalachian woods, seemingly without a fixed destination in mind. An agonized scream draws him to a nearby cave where he finds a grizzly bear menacing a badly injured old man. After a brief but brutal battle, Swamp Thing snaps the bear's neck, only to find that he intervened too late as the old man is about to succumb to his injuries. Before darkness takes him forever, the wizened figure imparts a word of warning. Stay away from the town of perdition, aptly named. After giving a brief rundown of the town's history with his dying breaths, which involves a once prosperous mine now bereft of coal and other precious ores that led to one inhabitant of the town, who turns out to be the old man's father, in fact, attempting an occult ritual in the bowels of the earth to correct matters, the town was left cursed, with people disappearing when they wandered too close to the old abandoned mine. The old man passes, and the swamp thing wanders the woods with his corpse cradled in his arms, until he stumbles into, that's right, you guessed it, the very town Perdition, which he was warned away from by the old man. After a scuffle with the local yokels, who understandably thought that it was the Swamp Thing who had killed the old man, who is also known as Old Ezekiel by the townsfolk, order is restored when the mayor and a commanding young man called Jason and his family show up. They invite the Swamp Thing to join them in their house for rest and recuperation, And though something about these people strikes him as strange, Swampy follows them and he's lulled into a kind of soporific sleep. Later that night, though, at what appears to be a party in Swampy's honor, Jason's son disappears into the woods and a search party is organized. The trail leads to the mouth of the Forbidden Mine and Swamp Thing offers to venture inside to retrieve the boy. Deep in the recesses of the earth, he encounters a sentient and very verbose cosmic tumor from beyond the abyssal gulfs of space. And this tumor has a name, folks. It's called Nagalach. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Lenween. This <laughs> chthonic atrocity wishes to absorb the mind of the Swamp Thing to grow its horrid mass so that it might one day, eons hence, conquer our reality when the celestial bodies align. In a villainous monologue, in an epic villainous monologue, it tells of how the unholy ritual initiated by Ezekiel's father allowed it to enter our reality as a cancerous lump on its summoner's form, and eventually it grew in to swallow the man in its desire to maximize itself by feeding on yet more life forms, rabbits, humans, it doesn't discriminate. Swamp Thing foils its hideous plans with his colossal strength as he pulls free of Nagala's grasp, rips a giant wooden column from the floor of the mine, and hurls it into the heart of the Lovecraftian mass of pulsating flesh. And this action causes the complete collapse of the mine, 
burying Minagala under its untold tons of solid rock, seemingly ensuring his demise. Swampy exits the tunnel of the ruined mine to confront the traitorous townsfolk who, it turns out, had led him to the cave to appease Nagala's hunger. As he leaves, a familiar cancerous growth can be seen on the bicep of the man called Jason as he watches the Swamp Thing disappear in the darkness between the trees. So, uh, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> pretty good story. I liked it. What did you guys think? In my head, I read the name out loud as Managala, but I think I just did that so I could add the, the Muppets music and go, Managala, Managala, Managala. Yeah, man. To, 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 we don't want to piss off those, those, those Muppets, so let's go with Managala. <laughs> yeah, man, it's a difficult name to pronounce. Not very Lovecraftian at all, but it, it does have this sort of hyphenated you know, single letter in front. And, uh, but, and the physical form is not Lovecraftian either, like kind of, as you said. I mean, it is just sort of this like cancerous growth lump type of thing, like with, with these tentacles. But when we really look at it, it's just this formless, shapeless, kind of like mass of, of like tumors and, and lumps and stuff like that. It has no real identifiable form or shape. But once we get to that, like the the panel breakdowns and everything, and like just like the cosmic scale of this thing, um, yeah. along you know pages basically um, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen, how he's really making he writes and is doing like splash pages for the whole outline, and then these insert panels to kind of get some of the action and exposition, like that's what really kind of takes it out into the the weird cosmic headspace and and makes it feel a bit more Lovecraftian. Yeah, I think. Um... You know, if you think about great horror illustrators, Richard Corbin, you know, obviously Tom Sutton, Mike Plug, and definitely Bernie Wrightson, who's at the top of the list. Um, you know, they're all they're all known for drawing some of the Cthulhu mythos at one point in their lives, but but Bernie not so much. You know, so I think he put his own spin on it a little and uh, incorporated some um, uh, inspiration from the Blob. Mm-hmm. You know, the old 1950s mu- uh, movie that they remade. You know, in the 1980s, the blob is in there and, um, you know, there's no tentacles like we see on the cover. I mean, there's sort of fleshy sort of protuberances that does wrap themselves themselves around people and around something's leg. But, you know, it doesn't look like the thing on the cover, which was plant-like. And and Lovecraft's stuff do often sometimes have a plant-like, you know, kind of um, feel or, or sound to them. You know, like if you, you look at, you know fungi from Yogos, <laughs> you know, those kind of thing, you know, so yes, but, um, you know, I like the Lovecraft monsters that are associated with the ocean, you know, with the deeps, with, you know, yep. marine life that we're, we'll, we'll never see in the abyss. Mm-hmm. This is not that, like you said, this is just a blob of, of tumorous flesh, uh, sort of looking like it's steaming on a skillet, <laughs> you know, constantly <laughs> bubbling and boiling. Yeah, but still well, well illustrated by Bernie. I mean, definitely. Um, I love all those panels. But it would be hard-pressed to call it Lovecraft if it wasn't for its origin story, which it gave in a monologue, which is something no Lovecraftian entity would ever do. <laughs> I mean, human speech is below them. They would never utter, you know, English <laughs> words or human syllables. It's not for us so, to yeah. understand where Monogla came from. Yeah, for real. Yeah, I mean, this is my favorite of all three, but it's just because of my, you know... Uh, love for these kinds of stories you know mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's a 
it's what I, I love about, you know, Herman and I did a, a Conan uh, story not too terribly long ago, and it had a creature that's sort of in a roundabout way like this one, um, mm-hmm. it, except it eats cows whole instead of <laughs> rabbits and people. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it's and it has balls, remember? It has yeah. testicles. <laughs> Giant <laughs> balls on the top, top of its head. head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, love this. This is my favorite of the three, like I said. just I mean, that opening splash page... Oh, I love that. The way it's Swamp Thing with the snow coming down, the lurker in Tunnel 13. Oh, it's an incredible splash page. And I do like the way the, you know, monster is rendered inside as opposed to just the little tiny glimpse you get on the cover. I think it's it's really cool. Like, you know, you said, Ryan, those uh, splash pages with the panels interspersed, you know, showing the origin. and Oh, incredible. Bernie just really, he to me, he turned it up a notch in this one compared to the last three. Yeah. I, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on on, on this. Yeah, I, I like, was how would you rank it among the the three that we've done? How would you rank this one? <sighs> Good question. I I think I I surprisingly I I might like issue six a little bit more with the the clockwork one just because I think it, it kind of went against my expectations, um, and I felt like the. <sighs> I wanted to say that hmm, no, I was going to say that the, the climax of this one felt more passive, but it wasn't actually. This was for the first time like Swamp Thing was really fighting back at the thing and, and attacking it and caused its destruction. So I don't know. I might have to. I might ha- ask me that question again when we're done talking okay. about it. What's going to go later? There. I need to. Well, I mean, I need to process a little bit more of it. It's definitely the more generic of the three horror... I mean, okay, the first one being horror and this one being horror, the middle one that we discussed with Batman not really being your typical horror tale. Right, This is right. definitely more the generic of of the Swamp Thing issue so far, if you think about it in a horror sense, because it follows, you know, the the, the sort of um, the line of, of uh, a plot of a horror tale where you have, um, you know, someone are delivering an ominous warning and then the person being it, it being delivered to eventually enters into this 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 danger zone. <laughs> Sorry, mm-hmm. Kenny Loggins. And then um, you know you've got um, uh, the confrontation with the monster, or first you've got you know the victims, and you've got the confrontation with the monster. And then he takes out the monster very predictably, you know, as you would think Swamp Thing should do. But and then it has the the typical twist ending at the end, where you see that the monster in fact is not dead; it's still alive and it's growing on this guy's body in the, in a new tumor. So, you know, no surprises. That's why I at first wanted to give, you know, it to the first issue, the, the issue six, as the better tale. Because there you see more of Swamp Thing's, you know, you see more pathos. You see more of Swamp Thing's human nature coming to the fore. You see more of him dealing with his past and the fact that the central, tr- you know, the, the core of the character, which is like he laments the, his lost humanity. But then, you know, because what we mentioned, the conclave entered into that and sort of shattered that that illusion a little bit of this this hard tale that they were setting up. Um, I'm I'm favoring this one too because it is very Lovecraftian in the sense that you've got this cosmic scale being, you know, mentioned. And and if you think about this being part of the DC universe, Nagala is God, <laughs> sort of. He he admits that in his origin during the monologue that he was the one who jump started life on Earth, and and not only that. <laughs> he also jump-started intellect because, you know, he inspired writers like Poe, Ambrose Bierce, H.P. Lovecraft. And Lovecraft, yeah. <laughs> he gave humans the capacity for mindless violence. <laughs> Damn, this guy's... He's like Shumagoras, right, Billy? Like the, the yeah. Doctor Strange uh, villain from the Cancerverse. He is that level of, of epic. 
So I, because of that alone, I like this issue the most of it all because it has that epic horror feel, you know, to it. That if Swamp Thing didn't take out this creature, it would have grown beyond proportions, and it would have eventually uh, uh, ruled this universe. You know, whenever these uh, you know cosmic bodies aligned, like it mentioned. Um, so you know that's why the horror here is very pronounced, especially the way Brighton draws it, like that little carcass of the rabbit being you know nestled inside the folds of this tumor. That is very disturbing. And then obviously the fact that these townsfolk, again, reprehensibly, much like the werewolf tale we discussed, right, um, Ryan, where these two yep. people sacrifice, you know, folks who crash in airplanes on, on their property to their <laughs> ravenous son, the werewolf. These folks are the same. They're sacrificing travelers to uh, appease the hunger of this cosmic entity god slash thing that lives in their basement, <laughs> which is the mine yeah. of the town. I, I was getting another uh, more sort of classical horror and, and also Lovecraftian vibe from, like, the village that, you know, as soon as he enters, they're like, oh, yeah, they're, like, welcoming him and trying to play off that everything is fine. It reminded me of, like, the, the shadow over Innsmouth or something like that. Yeah. With, like, once he's there, they don't want him to leave because they need to kind of set up that he's he's there. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. Again, uh, so by now, Len Wein is writing an entirely essentially different Swamp Thing personality. He's basically writing Swamp Thing as normal Alec Holland trapped in this monstrous body. Um, yeah. Instead of the sort of instinctive because like inner dialogue or inner monologue that, that uh, Swamp Thing is giving is, is much more of a human sort of personality and traits. And again, we have the similar situation where he shows up to a village and I'm like, why aren't people freaking out that it's Swamp Thing there? Like, they, they attack him because they think he murdered Ezekiel. And the other people are like, whoa, 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 calm down. He did, like, Ezekiel was clearly mauled by some kind of monster, not him. It's like, he, how would you know that he's not the monster that did it? He's like, why is yes. nobody <laughs> responding to the fact that he looks like this? Two things, two things about this village. Lots of folks must have suffered bear attacks in this village because they, they <laughs> recognized, well, except for this old guy who initially attacked Swamp Thing because he thinks Swamp Thing murdered Ezekiel, the, the folks recognize bear claw marks very easily. <laughs> you know, so they, that's, that's the one aside I got from this. Second, you know, in the beginning, it seems really incongruous that they would accept Swamp Thing on face value alone. But then later on, when you realize they're used to the monsters, they're used to maybe going down into this mine and, or, or shepherding people towards this mine. Yeah, Swamp Thing, as a monster compared to this monstrosity living in their mind, he's probably not, you know, doesn't doesn't measure up. <laughs> so Swamp Thing's... But, you know, we don't know that in the beginning. So it's a little bit clunky, you know, storytelling, if you think about it. Like this, again, there's just another town that accepts Swamp Thing for, you know, what he is, just because he's vaguely humanoid. <laughs> so you're right, that it does take you out of it a bit. They're but, also you know, they're also all wearing just like shirts and it's snowing out. Nobody's wearing a jacket or a hat or anything like that. It's like, yeah. Aren't you people cold? Go inside. Yeah, yeah. and, and <laughs> I mean Swamp Thing's very brutal on this issue too. We've talked about the animal, you know, um, uh, the animal deaths in the previous issue. In this one, he does feel bad about this bear attacking him, mm. but he eventually just savagely snaps its neck. Obviously, that he didn't have a yep. choice because he had to pick between the bear and the old man. But then it turned out to be for nothing because the old man was dying already. Mm-hmm. Still, that was a brutal scene for me because at first Swamp Thing sort of judo tosses the bear. <laughs> <laughs> the bear has these question marks behind its growl like, <laughs> like, 
almost like Yogi the Bear if he was, you know, uttering an actual bear sound. <laughs> and I, I love okay. it. As soon as he tosses it, he's like, the bear will be out for a while. I'd better check out. And, like, right away, the bear is on him in the next panel. Like, t- like knock him aside. It's like, what made you think the bear oh. was unconscious? Like, <laughs> he's such a bad judge of his own strength. Think about it. He did the same thing with Batman. Yeah. You know, when he knocked out Batman, he was like, Batman will be out for, for hours. And then Batman wakes up and he says, geez, he's, he's awake already. <laughs> It's the same thing with the bear. <laughs> Judo tosses him, and he doesn't know that this bear will come back, claws ablazing. And then, you know, uh, he he gets pulled into a bear hug, which he <laughs> actually says without referencing the pun. I would have loved it if, if Wynn put that in there. Oh, he's putting me in a bear hug. Pardon the pun. But something doesn't do that. He just, it's it's dead serious from here on in. Then he snaps the bear's neck. Crack. And then, you know, there's this brilliant panel of seemingly the light from the old man's uh, lantern, you know, sort of mm-hmm. shining from the ground and, and, and seeing Swamp Thing, who, who at this point in time has his legs wrapped around the bear's torso, too, <laughs> snapping this bear's neck. It's a, it's a brutal scene. And then, you know, uh, I don't know, it's, it's very, very disturbing to me because, you know, and to you guys, too, we, we don't like seeing things happen to animals. We're all pet owners. Um, but um, this is the second time in two issues where we've seen this, so it's a little bit much for me. But um, yeah, it, it makes sense in the story, you know, kind of. Yeah, this one was like you're saying. This one, a lot of horror tropes in this one. You know, I'm a sucker for those though, so that's probably why I like this one best. But you were saying about which one between six or eight. But yeah, six. Ryan, you had said it best too. That was a good swerve by uh, Len Wein. You know, going into that village, and you were thinking that. You know, the clockmaker and the people in the village were going to end up being the you know, antagonists of the story, but it turned out they weren't. So that was pretty good, too. So they're they're probably just about even for me. Back to the bear. Like, like I, I couldn't help but after like after reading this one, I thought of um, the bear attack in the movie The Revenant, the Leonardo DiCaprio one, which yeah. is like for not being a horror movie. That scene, that attack is like the most horrific thing that I've seen in 10 years. Like, that was just. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, because it's so real. It's so goddamn real that attack. Mm-hmm. You know, no no no. This made me definitely I was thinking about the Revenants as well, but the name escaped me. For some reason I always forget the name of that movie. Yeah. It's such a good good title too, The Revenant. But um, you know, I always forget the name. So I was gonna work that into my notes, but I was like, nah. And then I'm glad you did mention that because think about what happened to this old man. You know, at this point in time. He's he's already been mauled by the bear. And uh, Wrightson could have gone a little bit further in showing some more blood here, but obviously they weren't encouraged to do that too much back then when the comic code still held sway. More so over DC than it did over Marvel in 74. But, you know, I think DC was still towing the line a little bit more back then. Mm-hmm. So he could have showed some splayed ribs. He could have shown some horrendous, you know, gashes in the old man's face. But, you know, he just leaves that up to our imagination. Mm-hmm. And then obviously it's there. It's definitely there. But, yeah. And, and and then page five, you know, the top we've got the the bear is down. It almost looks like its tongue is hanging out of the side of its mouth. Which, oh yeah, you see, the the second panel is from the old man's POV as like he's sort of dying and everything is sort of swirling and he can't see, so he can't really tell who Swamp Thing is or what he's making out. But the next shot of his face, his grizzled old wrinkly face, with a again with a, the nose and and the like the beard that's sort of upturned. As he's saying, and he's dying, and he says, uh, "Stay away from perdition. Don't go to that town." Not that perdition yeah. wasn't a good town once. And he starts to segue <laughs> into the oral history of this town. It's like, "You're dying. What are you doing, dude?" And it's, but I love like that yeah. last panel. It's a close up of the man, and his eye is his eye is 
tearing up, he's watering as he's dying, reflecting on this. Yeah. You see, like, the, the miners getting ready for this town. It's such a beautiful panel. But it's sort of undercut by the fact that it's like, don't go to this town. This town is cursed. Let me tell you all about it. And I mean all about it. <laughs> Look at that! Look at How much time? How much? How long is this story yeah. gonna take? I could, I could be getting you medical treatment right now. No, 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 no! Please, just one more story about this town. <laughs> you know the uh, the actor uh, Sam Elliott. Mm-hmm. You know from from stuff like yep, you know yep, yep. Lebowski and you know innumerable cowboy movies. He draw uh, writes and draws a lot of his men to look like Sam Elliott, even though Sam Elliott probably didn't look like that yeah. back then. Look at that ripped miner. <laughs> Yep, yep. <laughs> it looks like Sam Elliott from Roadhouse. You know, the Patrick Swayze movie. And, uh, you know, um, Lovecraft, uh, sorry, what am I saying here? Wrightson, <laughs> when he draws, um, you know, old people, he can put an old man's face on a completely ripped body if he wants to. And he frequently does, right? But then when he draws an old man, like really old, I'm talking here like 80, 80 something, then he draws him with this grotesque kind of deformed face, which is what this old man sports, you know, when he's dying. And um, that's a mark for me of a great horror illustrator because you got to kind of find a way to make the normal, the things that we would associate with, oh, my grandpa, you know, like, oh, someone, you know, who's, who's weak and harmless. He sort of finds a way to make that horrific. I mean, old age is horrific in itself, but this is even amped to, a, to the next level in Wrightson's hands. It's so brilliant the way he, he comes up with these, uh, you know, characters, these these distinctive looks. Yeah, he's so good. His His work, it's like... You see sometimes artists, even the good ones, a lot of times their faces, they don't have a huge repertoire of different faces, whether it's male or female characters. But when you look at Wrightson, just these three issues alone, there's a dozen or more different faces yeah. you know, on these different characters. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, so it makes him so great. Mm-hmm. Getting to page eight uh, again, like this, <laughs> and maybe it's just having read so many of these in quick succession. But the people are fighting him, and Swamp Thing says, "Wherever I go, I am attacked by weapon-wielding cretins." And to tell the honest truth, I'm sick and tired of it. This is what he's thinking as he's fighting them all. I'm like, "Well, yeah, that would definitely suck." But at the same time, you look like a swamp monster. <laughs> yeah, and, then, and again, like. Why do these people say, oh, he's just a stranger from out of town? He's green, and he's seven foot tall, and he doesn't have a normal face. What's wrong with you people? It's like, oh, yeah, they're possessed by whatever is monsters in this town. Oh, so. man. Now, it looks like he kills a guy there because, okay, there's soft snow beneath their feet, but it looks like he pile drives that guy head first <laughs> yeah. into the ground. Damn. Snaps it back, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but, but we got to say something about that, though. The guy did hit him with a pick yeah. right in yeah. his stomach. Uh, but- pickaxe, yeah. <clears throat> That's not gonna bother Swamp Thing though. Come on, no. but but a great. You're right. It's so weird the fact that he he complains about the fact that he's being attacked by humans all the time. He's a monster. Get used to it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. You should be used to it by now. Oh, no, it's a, it's a it's a great issue. I, yeah, it's my favorite of the bunch, uh, definitely. But just by narrow margin, beating out number six. But um, mm-hmm. you know, I think number six had more of a sort of like an emotional connection to the reader. If if you are you know of that ilk, <laughs> if you're an more of an empath. But this one, you know, it's just me. I, I wanted the horror. I got the horror, and I got some good backstory too. This town has a great history, and then you get to the history of of Managala, <laughs> Managala. I was going to call him monogamous. (laughs) (laughs) Monogala. You know, that's also another great bit of uh, Lovecraftian, you know, um, 
a, a mythos entering into the, the mix there, you know, this entity from beyond the stars trying to find egress into our reality and, and succeeding as a tumor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this. did you guys get the impression that this, this issue specifically felt very Marvel-esque to me? Now, that could be because I've read way more stories by Len Wein in the Marvel side of things, but it's just, oh, maybe it's because of all the Lovecraftian you know, issues Herman and I have read in the last year. No, 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 no. Dealing with Doctor Strange, but yeah. No, no, it's not. Gardner Fox, he was the one who brought the Lovecraft mythos into Marvel. He was writing for Marvel a lot during the early 70s. You know, obviously, um, uh, given given the job, because they they respected him as one of the greats of the Golden Age and Silver Age, but, you know, um, even though the writing wasn't always good, it's a fact that in Gardner Fox's own fiction at the time, he was doing a lot of Lovecraftian stories. He was a fan of Lovecraft. He read a lot of the paperbacks, you know, um, and he worked that into his own stories in the books that he was publishing and then into the comics he was doing. So DC didn't have that at that time. There, there are stories that touch upon the Lovecraftian, like this one, for instance. But remember, Len Wein had just left Marvel, not just like two years ago. He had been at Marvel for a brief while, you know. Um, that's something we shouldn't, shouldn't forget. Very briefly, he was there. You know, and then yeah. he also shared a room with, uh, you know, a, a couple of the Marvel writers. <clears throat> Conway. Conway, yeah. yeah, who was at Marvel at the time. So, you know, obviously they were talking about stuff late at night, smoking some heavy stuff. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> if Engelhardt was present, we don't know. But, you know, point being, these guys shared some, some of the horror zeitgeist that was floating around at the time. And um, Marvel did have more Lovecraftian stories. It's just a fact. But, um, you know, I'm not surprised that it eventually did make uh, show up. I, when I think DC at this time, I think more classical, universal, horror-type monster stories. And, and also yeah. more, you know, like the ghost stories we got from Hammer and or, or the, the monster stories we got from Hammer films. Um, whereas with Marvel, I think they, they sort of didn't use film as inspiration much. Mm-hmm. But um, that's what I liked about DC, too, in the early 70s. They took their... Like if you look at the title, ghosts, you know the the the, the DC comic ghosts. They took inspiration from from classical ghost stories of Victorian era Gothic fiction, and you know I like that. If you track <laughs> the series, yeah, if you track the series Swamp Thing up to this point, as Ween and Wrightson have been going through these different genres, it's been it started off very gothic in nature, you know, mm. issue two had like this mad scientist feel with Anton Arcane, and then issue three was Frankenstein, issue four was the Wolfman, issue five was the witches and everything, and you sort of saw this this trajectory, and then we start getting into 50s and 60s science fiction with the robots and things like that, yeah. and, and now we're into like the, the Cthulhu thing, and we'll have space aliens and stuff in the next issue, and everything like that, so we'll they're, they're kind of going through a sort of history of these horror tropes and everything like that. And this was just, yeah. they happened to stop off at, at this one. And, and I do, what I do appreciate this one is in the, the sort of classic story sense, this doesn't have to be a Swamp Thing story. You could replace Swamp Thing with an ordinary guy, with a few exceptions. I mean, the fact that he, you know, he, he kills the bear, he would need a weapon or something if he was going to do that or find some other way of getting out of the bear situation. Fighting off the people... And then the, ultimately, how he destroys that. Like, I mean, you could you could swap those out, but this could be a normal guy who stumbles into this village, and at first they're afraid of him, but then they they welcome him in, and he's he volunteers to help them look for this missing kid, and then he finds out this dark and sinister secret of this town, 
and has to escape with his life just before like this thing collapses on him. Um, this didn't have to be a Swamp Thing story, and I kind of like that they they kind of they had all the beats, the sort of tropes as you were describing of what this Lovecraftian story would be, and then made it a Swamp Thing story to fit. Yeah, that, that's that. No, you're right. Those are some good points. Yeah, I I think that you know if you look at it like that, like the, like Ween working through the history of horror, you know, from from Victorian era, the Gothic horror earlier than that, even it started. But I mean, if if he works in his way up. You know, then once he hits the science fiction issue, which which is is coming up in two issues time, I think it is, then, you know, there's not much further to go other than you have to come up with some original sto- stories of your own. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think that was his thought process at the time. He was going to, you know, pay homage to the horror he loved as a kid, which is well documented. He's, he's said this in many interviews. He was a movie fan. So from a very young age, he loved horror movies and stuff, even though he never thought he would write horror, but he did end up writing horror. So, you know, I think if you look at it like that way, it makes sense. It's just like, you know, you can't continue with that. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't continue on with that. And and I think the series suffered a little bit from that lack of direction later on. But but right now, I think this was one of the highlights of the series because it did touch on a, on a part of horror that is distinctly American. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about Lovecraft. Um, and uh, he's the father of modern horror, so definitely uh, they could have done even more. Uh, but but they treated this as a one-off sort of horror type of, of genre that you know they've explored. They need they needn't come back to. And I think they made a mistake there because Lovecraft is not just one thing. You know, there's so many things about Lovecraft's fiction uh, that they could have explored further, and even about the Gothic era. But that was done. That was over. It would have been disingenuous if he did go back. But I wouldn't have minded it. I wouldn't have minded it. They should have mined the depths of all classic horror over and over again. I mean, they never did a vampire tale, which nope. somehow could have been reworked. I mean, the, the first vampire tale we saw was in the Marty Pasco right. and uh, Thomas Yates one. I think it was issue three or something. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I don't know why they didn't hit upon that. But, you know, I, what I'm saying is that it should, after this issue, things started, and after the alien issue we would see coming up, it sort of started to fall off for me a little bit. I started to sort of struggle to not like it, but I, I, I still liked it quite a bit. But it seemed that they lost direction a little bit. Yeah, yeah and the I conflict. Mean, they they might have been feeling the same way because Wrightson will leave after issue ten, and Ween leaves after yeah. issue thirteen. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They might have been. You know, they've done what they wanted to do with the title, and now they were going to get ready to hand it off. Yeah, you're right. Billy, any final thoughts on this one before we go? Uh, no, just to reiterate that, you know, if you're into those kind of stories, uh, Lovecraftian type stories, this one's for you. And, you know, you guys are getting me all charged up here talking about what comes down the road, because this is actually the first time I'm reading these stories, and I did not read ahead either. So I still have 9 through 13 here in the trade I have to read, so I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I mean, you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to be put off by the fact that Wrights and Leaves, because we've got Nestor Redondo Mm -hmm. jumping on the title after Wrights Wrights and Leaves, and I think he did some spectacular issues. He does. You know, so, yeah, so even though you you don't have Wrights and and then you don't have Ween, you know, you still get some pretty great stories, And, and I think the direction still not being quite there, it's sort of like, the, you know, the, the creative team, um, you know, feeling their way around, you know, trying to, to find what works in terms of getting the title to sell better. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were some really standout issues. And then I think the writer was David Michelini later on um, after Len Wing left. I'm not sure. He, but I, I think he, yeah. Yeah, the, the last 
11 issues, because it was canceled with issue 24, I think the last 11 issues, I think there are three or four writers on all of those issues. I think Conway does a yeah. few... Um, I, I I don't even remember. Uh, they they try to do a couple of different things, making it more conventional superhero type, uh, going other ways. It's it, yeah, it, it just never really finds its footing. Um, and yeah, it, yeah, it, it needed a fresh like cancellation and retooling because once once Pasco and Yates took over with Saga of the Swamp Thing, it was much much better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But Billy, like like we said, don't let that put you off from reading further because there's definitely some really good. Uh, you know, art and uh, also, you know, a, a few beats, uh, high, high highlights, I would say, in um, Michelini's writing. And Lenwin's, you know, till 13, he's there. He, he offers up some good stories, too. So um, overall, one of my favorite comics, you know, runs um, of all time, issues one to ten at least. And uh, I can endlessly reread them without getting tired of it. Alrighty, well, thank you both for joining me on this episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. Uh, Herman, why don't you tell the listeners where else you can be found in the podcastosphere? Right. Well, Billy and I are doing the podcast Into the Weird, which focuses, like you mentioned earlier, on Marvel, Bronze Age, uh, wacky weirdness, and also horror um, every now and then when we talk about the Marvel magazines and so forth. And then uh, you can find that on any podcatcher. Um, and we're also on uh, the web at www.sinkintotheweird.com. And then I'm doing my other podcast, The Long Box of Darkness, with my new co-host, Misty, Misty Graves. Um, we've got two episodes out so far uh, this year, and another one probably going to drop next week. Um, and you can find that at www.longboxofdarkness.com. And we're also on you know, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all of that. Um, and then on Twitter, you can follow me at Dark Longbox or at Into Weird. And that's where you and I and Billy hang out most of the time, <laughs> whiling away the hours. <laughs> Billy? Yeah, I'm on Twitter as well. Really active on there. Uh, always in the conversations with you guys, talking about comics and you know all that jazz. So look for me there, uh, at Billy D underscore Licious. And then uh, also magazinesandmonsters.com, my blog. All right, very, very cool. Highly recommend your shows, listeners. Uh, give these guys more of your attention because really, really fun output from them. And listeners, we are going to take one final promo break right now, and after that I will respond to your feedback from the last episode. Stick around, and I will be right back. In a world filled with movie-themed podcasts... Thousands speak their minds, shouting their opinions into the void. Into this terrifying world of sound and noise, a new podcast about movies dares to raise its head. Appearing on the Longbox Crusade Network, in association with Jeff and Rick Present, it is the era of monthly Monday movie muckabout. Listen as people are challenged to see films that they have missed or failed to see. Hear their new appreciation for films from years past. Experience the discussions of film fans. Is the world ready for monthly Monday movie muckabout? Yes. Yes, it is. And cut. Perfect, Jeff. Great. So when are we going to start this show? Um, just me. This is my new show. I thought we talked about this. Uh, then why am I doing your promo? Because in reality, I'm an egotistical puppet master that uses people for his own profit and fame. Huh. Eh, fair enough. 
Monthly Monday Movie Muck About. Watch a movie with me. On the previous episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour, Rob Kelly and I discussed Swamp Thing Issue 5, and Mike Gillis and I talked about the Spectre story from Adventure Comics 435. As always, we got some great support on social media, as well as a couple of comments on the website fireandwaterpodcast.com. Chris Franklin, my partner on Batman Nightcast, as well as one of the hosts, along with his lovely wife, Cindy, of the annual House of Frankenstein series, which should be starting up uh, in about a week or two. Chris said, glad to hear PJ is in good form and has fully recovered. Maybe a little therapy with Dr. Nerfenherder did him some good. Uh, you know what? I think PJ might still be in session with Dr. Herman's Hermits because, as you heard at the beginning of this show, Neron, or whoever the hell it was, uh, had to sub in for him. Uh, then Chris goes on, The Swamp Thing tale reminded me a bit of Lovecraft's The Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which was adapted into the great Roger Corman Vincent Price film The Haunted Palace, which Cindy and I covered on House of Frankenstein last year a village cursed by a witch years ago who begat deformed children. Nice twist ending. And I'm with Rob. Too bad we never saw this brother-sister act again. Kind of surprised more or Gaiman didn't work them in somewhere. To which Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I'm torn between wanting the witchy kids to return and being able to assume they had a happy ending. Cause you know they wouldn't have returned for a cheery storyline. Uh, that's a good point. That they return probably would have pretended something uh, awful or tragic. So, uh, Martin then added that Spectre stuff was fabulous. I do wonder what it was with DC writers naming characters after colleagues. Jerry Grandinetti gang, indeed. The DC war and mystery artist did draw some Spectre in the '60s, but as tributes go, a crook isn't the best. I don't know about that. I can see some people taking a kind of perverse pleasure in being homaged in a horror story only to meet this really gruesome end. Um, like a big actor guest starring on a show or getting a cameo in a movie just to have something horrible happen to them. I think in some ways that might be kind of more memorable and leave a more lasting impression. So I, I don't know. I think that would be kind of fun. Like I... I would love it to be homaged in a, in a movie or a TV show or book or something or, or name dropped and have like, God, some horrible fate befall my character just because I think that's something that would last with people. But anyway, uh, well, I mean, if it was done out of love, you know, obviously, <laughs> if it was somebody who did it as a veiled threat, okay, that's a, that leaves a little bit different impression. Uh, Lizanne Oswald said, um, th so this was concerning whether or not the Ravenwind boy would be called a witch or a warlock. Lizanne said, I think he would just be a male witch. I think a warlock is an evil male witch. Not sure. My knowledge of Wicca is sparse. The triple goddess and all that is not something I know much about, so I'm guessing, and what I've heard about warlocks. But that was a long time ago. Uh, Siskoid from here on the Fire and Water Network said, If the Spectre is on Earth Prime, I've got a list of names he might want to look at. Yeah, no kidding. Who who wouldn't we sick him on for to exact some kind of karmic revenge? Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, Three thoughts on the PJ Frightful segment. One, is PJ Frightful in fact Doctor Who, and he regenerates into a different PJ Frightful on his death? I don't know what you're talking about. It's the same guy. Everybody thinks he, he sounded different. 
Uh, two, are we going to get a few more PJ Frightfuls arriving on the scene, all arguing that they are the one true PJ Frightful? We can call it Reign of the PJ Frightfuls. <laughs> Reign of the Frightfuls would be a cool name for a crossover event or something. Uh, we did not get a second PJ Frightful. We didn't. There, there's never been like the the one that we had in the last episode was the same one you've always heard. I, uh, and today we had um, Nebulos, Nebulos, somebody, something in for him. Uh, and number three, or in fact, is PJ Frightful like the James Bond movie series? And we have this once off with an Australian actor until the original returns, or maybe we skip to when the Irish actor takes over. Prepare as my resume. Uh, nice job, Jimmy. I like what you're doing there. And finally, Ward Hill Terry said, The much-revered Spectre series from Adventure doesn't and never really did hold together as an ongoing story of a ghost and his supporting cast. It's just a collection of revenge fantasies, masterfully drawn by Aparo. This story, with the Clark Kent references, highlights the question about where the hell it's supposed to happen. Not Earth-1, Earth-2, or Earth-Prime. Furthermore, the Spectre seems to be deliberately tardy in exacting his retribution. Why can't he take care of all of the villains at one go? Why does he wait for them to do more heinous deeds? Why doesn't he show up two minutes earlier and prevent some violence? Never mind, enjoy the implied gore. I, I mean, yeah, I, I've touched on this problem. It's the reason I don't think the Spectre works on the Justice Society. He kind of breaks everything. And, and the same is true for basic continuity a lot of times within his own series. And I think that's why he was depowered or scaled down in the post-crisis Spectre series. But anyway, yeah, uh, this series works best as an extension of the horror anthology series like Unexpected and House of Mystery, House of Secrets, etc. like that. Uh, It just has the one recurring element, which is the Spectre, who is, as I've said, more of an agent of death rather than a character. So... Anyway, that is all for this episode. I will be back in about a month to cover Swamp Thing issues 9 and 10, covering the last of the rights and issues, and I'm also going to have something brand new for that show. Until then, take it away, Mephisto. It's midnight. The podcasting hour is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan Daly on Twitter at ryandaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support Midnight, the podcasting hour and the Fire and Water Podcast Network on Patreon. Special thanks to all of our generous supporters keeping this show alive, or perhaps undead. For more information on how you can support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music is used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. <laughs>